Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining us here today. My name, obviously, is Chris Spangle, or else, you know, self-explanatory. Today, we're going to talk about barriers to investing. This is a fascinating subject that I knew nothing about until I saw the article in Real Clear Clear Markets, excuse me, uh, part of the Real Clear Politics group. And uh, my guest is Danielle Zanzalari. All right, I think I got it. Danielle Zanzalari is an assistant professor of economics at Seton Hall University, Garden State an initiative contributor, and Young Voices contributor. She writes personal finance lessons plans for high school students across the country and deeply cares about personal finance education. Danielle, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. So, you know, it's a rare person who is involved in economics and personal finance. You seem to be involved in both. Yeah, I was kind of torn between going to graduate school for finance or economics. And so I went for economics because it's more broad. And then I have focused right on those two topics that I love, financial economics. I love talking about banking regulation. Um, You must be fun at parties, Danielle. Yeah. (laughs) I, I mean, put me in a room of, of economists. It's my favorite time. So yeah, actually, that, on, on my birthday this year, I was at a conference with economists and my sisters texted me and said, that sounds awful. I'm like, this was like the best birthday ever. I loved it. People say that about like libertarian party conferences too. Like, I, I, it's so nice to not feel alone. Nobody around me really wants to talk about this stuff. But I'm sure if you go to like an economics conference, you're surrounded by your own and it's a nice little community. Absolutely. Yep. So we are talking today uh, about your article in Real Clear Markets. The GOP must reduce the barriers to investing by the poor and middle class. Can you tell us what your article is about? Give us the thrust of your argument. So um, the SEC has a rule that says that you cannot invest in certain types of assets if you are... um, if you don't make enough money, essentially, they uh, and, and so my article is basically saying, hey, if the GOP gets control of Congress, they should really look at this and change this. More specifically, through Regulation D, the SEC says anybody who makes under two hundred thousand dollars a year, or a couple, uh, spouse, and and someone makes under three hundred thousand dollars a year, not including your main residence, or you don't have one of the special financial licenses. You can't invest in real estate startups or syndicates. And so essentially it's prohibiting people that don't have a high enough net worth from investing in certain assets. And these assets tend to come with tax advantages. They tend to help you get uh, different returns, maybe some outsized returns. So basically they're prohibiting investing in things that can make you money based on your income level. So this is odd to me because I, I, uh, I could use your help. I'm not great at money management or investing. I spent all my investment on podcast equipment. So that tells you where I'm at, uh, Danielle. But uh, explain a real estate syndicate and some of the the actual products that are being invested in, because I don't know. I mean, those of us who are middle class may not have even heard of some of these. Right. So, uh, I mean, a startup company could work. So if you want to invest in um, maybe a college classmate startup, you can invest through, um, if you can only invest technically if you're an accredited investor, a real, real estate syndicate means that um, a bunch of investors pool their money together to buy a real estate asset. So typically we're not talking about single family properties. You're thinking about like these very large apartment complexes that cost millions of dollars that 
you know, one investor typically doesn't have $5 million to, to invest in an apartment, but if you pull together 10 families, 20 families, you can. Well, you're not allowed to do that unless you are an accredited investor. And what the SEC says is that they want to ensure those participating investors are financially sophisticated to fend for themselves or sustain the risk of loss. So to the SEC, the wealthy is deemed financially sophisticated and the middle class financially stupid. Meanwhile, people are buying Twitter for $44 million ruining it. But we're not here to talk about that investment. Um <sighs> How did this come about? How did this, I assume a law passed by Congress, correct, that they they would have to unpass it? Yeah. So what's being proposed, uh, one of the things that was kind of floated around in the House Financial Services Committee within the House from um, House Rep. McHenry was that he um, and a few other colleagues wanted to expand this definition. So they didn't want to get rid of it completely, which probably would be my preference with it, that, you know, you're an individual, you can make your own investment choices. If you sustain, you know, loss, that's kind of on you. Um, you, you know, we don't want to talk about fraud, but, you know, genuine loss, people lose money all the time. Doesn't matter if you invest in Apple or real estate. But what his definition that he wanted to propose is that a you, um, anyone who invests more than 10% of their income can be an accredited investor. So even if you make $50,000, 10% if you invest $5,000 or more, you can actually invest in these sorts of assets, um, which is great. That's a lot more inclusive. It's not a, a threshold that you have to make $200,000 in a given year, but it's still not, you know, um, my money and I can board. do what I want yeah. with it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I mean, the thing is they, they worry about investors losing money. But you can lose money on any investment, whether it's an Apple stock with an Apple product and a company that's been around for years that's very sound or a real estate investment deal. Um, you're always still protected against fraud from um, a lot of the other agencies, uh, such as um, the CF. I'm like blanking on the acronym right now, and I apologize. But the CFCB, um, gosh, I'm just what, what do they do? They basically they they make sure that there's all these disclosures that banks have to operate in good faith that um, basically you can't fraud people out. So for example, with the cryptocurrency issue going on right now with FTX, they committed fraud by taking investors money and doing something illegal with it. That's always been illegal. So it doesn't matter if that happens in real estate or crypto, that's always illegal to defraud um, investors. So that's not really like the worry here, I guess the SEC saying we don't want people to lose money. But my thing is, if they really want to educate people, then educate people. If, if we're saying people are too financially stupid, then we need to fix our education right. and get financial education in there, not prohibit people from doing something. As we all know, you kind of learn by doing a lot of times. I know that the oh, way by I started losing. investing. <laughs> yeah, well, the way I started investing is you got to put money out there and you, you actually got to do it. Um, you can read all you want, but until you do it, you don't really get a feel for how things work. Um, and so kind of my work with this really started when I became an accredited investor, um, unbeknownst to me. And when I, I have a partial share of a property of a hotel. Now, hmm. I am not rich enough to own a hotel by myself by any means, but I can contribute a small sum of money and have a small sliver of that hotel Um owned by me and a, a bunch of other investors. But that's an opportunity that I would have not 
gotten unless I um, was able to get these opportunities. Yeah, because you talked about an, an app, a service, or something. It, it sounded sort of like the thing that, um, you know, I've played around with, uh, what's the app that it's like starts with an S? It's not Stripe. I don't know. Uh, Stash. Where you can buy like fractional pieces of a company. You can spend 30 cents on a share of stock if you want. It allows you to invest in companies where I don't necessarily have the money to buy five shares of Apple, let alone 500 shares of Apple. But I could buy five tenths and kind of allow it allows my money to grow by 20%. And apparently you talked in your article about services that allow you to do what you did, which is buy f- fractions of a hotel. And by the way, do you walk into the hotel and like throw your weight around? Like, do you know which well, hotel you own? I Dallas, or? so I knew the area quite well. So I felt really comfortable investing in it. Okay. Um, I actually lost. So the kind of funny thing with, well, the real estate, what's nice about real estate deals is if they depreciate assets a certain way, you get tax write off. So the rich get many tax write-offs with real estate, and um, that helped me last year, <laughs> and it might help me this year as well. So it's kind of interesting that I'm going to eventually make pretty good money in this deal, but I've been able to write off on my taxes legally for having real estate, where you can't really do that. I mean, you can do that with stocks up to $3,000. Anybody can if you lose up to $3,000, but there's a limit. Um, with real estate, you can write off the depreciation. Um, yeah, so one of the things that makes this more accessible and why this is a much bigger concern, I think, now than maybe 10 or 15 years ago, is tech has been innovative. We have financial technology everywhere. Your analogy for Stash was great. You own a fraction of a share, so you don't need to have over $2,000 to own or previously own an Amazon share of stock. That's a lot of money to own one share of Amazon, but you could have 50 bucks, 100 bucks. It's kind of the same way here with real estate. Um, the thresholds are a little bit higher than that, but it's still allowed, and it depends on platform, but you still could get us, you know, kind of skin in the game. There's deals like owning an office building in Miami. You can own a big apartment complex uh, in Kansas City, right? And so you're owning part of these and you're getting your feet wet with real estate, um, particularly, or you can be in a startup company as well. And so you're allowed to put your money in places that can make you can make you possibly more money than you could in the stock or bond market. But even if you can't make more money, it's the idea that you're diversifying your assets and you're allowed to do that because you're a human being that should have those sorts of choices and not have the government restrict them for you because you don't make enough money. And it's just so paternal. Like it's, it's definitely deciding who is in the wealthiest classes and who is not. And it's saying, well, you, Stupid poor people in the middle class just don't know what to do with your money, so we're just going to take care of you. Where, you know, somebody who may make $500,000 a year, they may not be more fiscally responsible than somebody that makes $50,000 a year. So really, why, if everything's sort of relative, you spend more money the more money you make, believe me, um, I, I guess I don't understand where, where, where do they get off? How dare they? <laughs> you know I what mean, I mean? I think it reduces competition, right? So the wealthy ah. are competing with everyday people for this capital, right? They don't have to compete with millions of people. They There's don't. They, a lot they, of people that could invest in these sorts of things. Yeah, the AMC movie guy, the CEO stepped down today. That's a great example of all of a sudden those, you know, those pores with their th- fancy apps on Robinhood are disrupting 
our 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 predictability. Right. You also have. Um, I lost my train of thought. Here. Well, you were saying it reduces the competition, which is such a great point. Yeah, that they they don't want to compete. They don't want to compete. They um, want to prohibit some of these, you know, investment opportunities that the rich have had access to for years. Like I said, there's tax write-offs. I mean, there are cases where people have invested with their IRAs into startup companies or Roth IRAs, which is, you know, you pay taxes up front when the money goes in, but it grows tax-free. Well, I, I forgot which CEO did this. One of the big tech firms, and I, your listeners can look this up. I think it's Microsoft, Apple, one of them. The owner owned all of their shares in a Roth IRA. So when this tech company took off, they owed no taxes on this. And so, again, you can do this, these sorts of things when you have accreditation. And if you're not accredited, you can't do this. So the rich get richer and the poor middle class kind of stay where they are. And for someone that's really a big advocate on financial education and having everybody learn how to be financially responsible, it's just wrong. Go ahead. I remember my point. This is what I was going to say. So, um, you know, say someone coming out of school with a computer engineering degree, they might be making $200,000 in San Francisco, right? So that would qualify them for accredited to be an accredited investor. But you have somebody who's 45, been working for 25 years, budgeted accordingly, has assets that are growing, has a home, has has all the, you know, done the right thing. And you're saying this 21-year-old making $200,000 is more financially sophisticated when <laughs> they've never invested in their life, whereas someone who's 45 has possibly. And... Maybe they don't make $200,000, but they're not sophisticated enough. And I just see a huge problem with these like arbitrary thresholds. What other things are out there that us uh, middle-class folk that maybe aren't financially sophisticated don't know we're missing out on? Well, there's limits on, um, I, I wouldn't say you're missing out, but there's limits on like how much a bank can pay you in interest. There's all these sorts of limitations. Um that are deemed like, oh, to make there be more capital for banks, to make things less risky. There's all the things that there's a lot of financial things the government does to try to protect consumers, but in a lot of ways it ends up hurting consumers. Um, so I am always very weary about uh, new financial regulation being announced because they never seem to revisit this old financial regulation that seems to be very clunky and outdated and, and incorrect and inefficient. And so um, I, I'm not sure if you kind of knew this, but I would previously worked at the federal reserve. And so <gasps> I worked, yeah, I worked for the Fed and then I worked for a private firm. But um, one of the things that the fed does is that they, they're a regulator, right? That, that is what they do. They regulate the really big banks. And I felt like they were always kind of looking for ways to regulate more and one of my problems was that we never reviewed all these other regulations on banks and say, maybe we don't need all this stuff. Because, I mean, if you regulate hard in one area, banks just kind of go find a different area for profit. You see banks getting out of the traditional ways they make money. Banks traditionally have been taking deposits, loan out money for cars, loans, small businesses. Well, loaning out for a home right now is very... Um, it doesn't make a bank a lot of money. There's so much disclosures. There's so much paperwork. Anybody who has a house can can tell you how much paperwork they sign. It's hard for banks to make money 
via a traditional single family mortgage. It's very, very difficult. And so you see a lot of the big banks, they don't even do this anymore. So what are they doing to make yield? Well, they're doing a lot more complicated things, things that are cutting edge. And so um, you have this regulation that's causing these kind of uh, consequences, maybe these unintended consequences, or banks are kind of going around this to try to make money. So again, I just find that this, there's so much financial regulation that just needs to be reviewed. And this is my biggest kind of pet peeve regulation that really needs to be um, reviewed for consumers and investors. Okay. No, that's great. I'm I'm interested in the Fed thing. I mean, before we move on to that, because I I you know I don't know if you have an NDA or whatever. Um, but any anything I should ask you that I don't necessarily know because I just don't know much about this topic that you know our listeners should be aware of in terms of regulations. In terms of just general regulations or this specific one? Specifically this one. But if you don't have one, then you know, give us give us some uh, other stuff. Um, I mean, I think I gave you a lot of information on this one. I don't want to sit here and say like I left any secret sauce behind. Okay. Um, I just, it's definitely keeping competition out for the rich. It's definitely hurting the poor middle class under some guys that, hey, you're not sophisticated enough to do this. We're protecting you. Don't worry. We're big brother. We're protecting you. And they're not. They're hurting you. They're hurting you from getting tax breaks. They're hurting you from making big returns. And from a, just a freedom perspective, it's just not very free. It's very limiting in your choices. Um, and that's just something I'm usually not for. Me neither. Uh, so let's talk about the Fed because, uh, you know, I'm, I've been a libertarian since 2007. I love me some Ron Paul. Somewhere over, you know, in this direction is the end the Fed book, right? And that's sort of the, the common refrain, is right? The common I don't have an end the Fed book, but I have a bunch of, of what you're talking about. Yeah, right? You know, uh, I don't, I don't want to presume you're a libertarian, uh, but you're probably in that direction if you're working with... I'm much more of a free market economist, I would say. I don't like to give myself a political bucket, per se, but... Um, much more of a free market economist. Okay. Less less government regulation is preferred. Yes. And so the common libertarian refrain on fixing inflation is ending the Fed. Evaluate that talking point. Um, I mean, that's a very big libertarian. I feel like there's two sects. If you know, that's a very big libertarian talking point, probably more mainstream party where that's gone. And that's where I deviate a little bit from you know, from being in any like specific political party bucket, I think the Fed. You mean you know too much about specific things to be lying to people? <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I don't feel like one ideology kind of just fits me. I, I, I go with economics pretty much all the time, and so that could leave me, you know, any which way, um, because we know politicians just say something to get your vote, and it doesn't mean it's economically sound, right? But. Um, yeah, so I do think the Fed can cause inflation. I do. And I don't want to sit here and say that they have not been complacent in the recent, you know, run up with inflation. It's been easy money during COVID to, to borrow. Uh, they were lending to uh, municipal governments, which they never really did before directly, like state and municipal governments, although not many took it. There was that backbone that any state could do that. Of course, Illinois uh, did borrow from the Fed directly, but not many states did. They allowed, you know, businesses to borrow directly from the Fed, not just via banks. And so it just became, um, it just became a, a, a way to get easy money. 
But that that coupled with a lot of supply chain issues and what fiscal policy was doing with the PPP loans, um, direct unemployment claims, those have all led to inflation. But I'd be amiss to say that it, a lot of this is not a supply chain issues. It's, it's much more supply chain issues. But it seems like, you know, it's it's you know, the government's not doing a great job to encourage an increase in supply. That's what fixes our problems. Uh, I am happy to see the Fed raise rates, though, Diane. That's that's one way to kind of help help slow down inflation. And they're doing that, and they're doing it aggressively. It's going to sting a little bit, but um, it was a little bit late, in my opinion. It was a little late, but it's better than not doing it. So you're interested in personal finance, and you understand a lot of this macroeconomic stuff. And we've done a few episodes about 2023 and that it could be a little rough. Uh, in terms of an economic downturn of some sort, uh, many people predi- predicting it's not going to be as bad as 2008, which means it could probably be worse than 2008, or it could be better. We don't know. But um, if you're if you're talking to somebody who is maybe living paycheck to paycheck, or little you know a little better than that, right? Like. How how do you prepare for recession? Uh, this is not financial advice from Danielle personally. This is just her opinion on a podcast. So please don't take that as financial advice. But I'm just wondering, like, what you would generally say to somebody who's in that position, and and what can they expect to plan for over the next year? So my my financial education advice that I that I teach students is is kind of simple um, sounding. That doesn't mean it's not hard on your budget which is you need a three to six month emergency fund. So before you get to the point of a recession, you need to be saving. So if a recession does hit and you do lose your job, you're not scrambling. That might be hard for someone living directly at the paycheck, you know, paycheck to paycheck, but finding $10, $20 each month to save and stock away. And so you get three months of your living expenses saved would is tremendous cushion. And then you always should maintain a budget of 20% savings. The other categories, I kind of um, always teach 30% housing, 30% um, needs. So car car loan, gasoline, groceries, 20% once. So eating out, DoorDash, movies, Netflix, that's a want, that's not a need, and 20% savings. So the idea is that if you save 20% of your money and you're living off at 80%, you're going to be in a really great position for retirement. You're going to be in a really great position if there's a downturn. And so a lot of the work comes up front. So if you find yourself kind of stuck, like we're in a recession, you lose your job, try to do the best you can to try to find a job right away and get your bills paid, but then start thinking ahead because that's really that's really how you get through it. All right. Well, shameless self-promotion time. I really enjoyed talking to you. You had a lot of great information. Where can people follow you and get more information if they'd like to? So the best place is to follow me on Twitter at dzanzaleri. So just DM them my last name. Happy to talk with you on Twitter about anything and everything. All right. Thank you so much for joining me here on the show. Thanks, Chris. And thank you, listener, for joining me. If you learned something, then the best thing you can do to help this podcast or any content creator that you love is to share it with your friends. And we just thank you so much for listening here on The Chris Spangle Show.